Hope you've had a good couple weeks. Over Christmas, I got to go up to Brisbane. And while I was there, I had the chance to interview Shastra Deo. I was totally convinced this interview wasn't going to happen, that I wasn't going to get to Brisbane at all. But I did, and it was beautiful. And I am so pleased that I got to have this talk with Shastra in person. She's the author of a book called The Agonist, and that won the 2016 Thomas Shapcott Poetry Prize. It also won the 2018 ALS Gold Medal, which Shastra does not mention, but I think it's worth mentioning here because it's such a blinder of a book and it is so different to so much else that has come out over the last five years. Her next book is called The Exclusion Zone, and that's going to come out sometime in the next year, it looks like, with University of Queensland Press. We caught up on the University of Queensland campus. God, it's beautiful there. It is just ridiculous. I can't believe people go to school on such a beautiful campus. So yeah, it was just a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be there. Some of the stuff we talked about includes the pressure that we put on work produced by poets of colour and how Shastra kind of manages that. Um, We talk about how you know you're ready to write a second book and how do you know if it's better than your first one? How do you know if you're progressing? We talk about teaching and how that can kind of paralyze you when you're trying to write. And Shasta reads a couple of poems of her own along with a really, really amazing Sharon Olds poem. Uh, There's a whole bunch of name checks in here, so the show notes are going to be extensive. But this is one of those interviews that I barely had to touch. I really just enjoyed listening back to it. And I hope that you enjoy it too. And most of all, I hope you're well. I hope things are okay where you are. And that today is a good one. I thought I would just ask you to start with about this year because we are recording on the 30th of December and while time is a flat circle and white nonsense I wonder if you would care to describe the shape of the year you mentioned something online about how it's been quite up and down for you This was a strange year because I finished, I started writing my thesis, the actual essay portion of my dissertation, but the poems were more or less done before the end of this year. Like I think by about December, everything was finished and the manuscript was finished. This is for the exclusion zone. The exclusion zone, yeah, 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 the new collection. Mm -hmm. And coming into this year, I was thinking I would finish writing the thesis, have this wonderful break period where I would write more poems, and then it just became a complete poem drought, which was strange. I think because I've been teaching this year, which is obviously rewarding and wonderful in its own way, but it takes from the same well, I think, doing the teaching, being in close contact with students and reading their poems, commenting on the poems, Mm. it pulls from that same, I think, creative well that the actual writing does too. So that's been difficult, you know, it's really um, a great opportunity to be able to help other people in any capacity, 
but I like doing my own work. So that's been the difficulty I think of this year as well. It's just that desire to, it's especially hard when you actually want to be writing and you can't find the space or the time or the energy to do that, I think. Very frustrating. Yeah, I feel like you've got to do this crazy U-turn mm. where you've been being critical and thinking about what works and what doesn't in other people's work. Like I'm talking about this like I've ever done it. I've never, <laughs> I've never told poetry, but um, yeah, I can imagine it requires you to turn that critical brain off for an extended period so that you can actually, you know, write a first draft. Yeah, because I hate going into anything thinking about what other people want from the poem. You know, I think you can get into that space where you end up really reader-centered while you're writing, and I don't yes. like doing that. Oh my goodness, yeah. you just described like the first, well maybe still, that's how I write. It's comes. It's a side effect of being a copywriter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can never forget the reader. And it's that, I don't know, that I guess there's always an ideal reader for your work, isn't there, that you're imagining, but normally I imagine myself as, you know, I want to make something that's mine and that I, I like first and foremost, mm. and if I don't like it, then it's of very little value to me. But it just ends up being in that space where, I hate being in that space where I'm doing that writing and then thinking, oh, expletive construction, or oh, look at, you know, why are you using that punctuation mark there, which, which is a weird, space to be in but yeah. I think having been in that editorial you know feedback space all semester and a good four months of the year was just like completely messed up how I would you know tackle any form of writing mm. is it coming back at all now or I think I'm resting now I yeah. I needed to um Eileen Chong calls it wool gathering I've always referred to it as the input output phases but wool gathering I think is nicer but just that period of time where I'm watching a lot of TV and playing games and trying to read a lot but actually mm. just being on Reddit and reading that instead <laughs> which is very cursed but I'm I'm just resting I yeah. think which is good because I haven't rested in a while. I really regret asking you that because like while I've been um, doing family Christmas you know two sides of family Christmas the question that I guess people think that they should ask is are you writing? <laughs> Have you written anything? Mm -hmm. How's the writing going? And yeah, it's like, God, no, I haven't written anything. Are you kidding? Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's, oh, I just, I really respect anyone who's managed to do it in these I mean, unprecedented times. Kind, I kind of respect <laughs> and I kind of just have questions, like a lot of questions. <laughs> I loved, um, uh, Evelyn Araluen did that great quarantine piece. I don't know if you've seen it. I with, have not seen that. Oh, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic with video and um, an audio overlay and just just a real deep dive into what it is to be actually trying to make anything mm. <laughs> in this period of time. And I think that's, I don't know, you have to honor that experience, don't you? You have to honor whatever comes in this time. Yeah, and just resist um, the constant equation of your value with your output um, which is just a fancy way of saying if you're not working you're not a person mm -hmm. um, and I guess that sort of brings me to where where I was going to start which is when we chatted on the phone um, I said oh what what is interesting you at the moment what's like on your mind in terms of poetry and we spoke a little bit about work specifically in terms of the work that people of color are asked to do 
in general, I think, but also specifically when it comes to reading and writing. And I got really, really excited because I have precious few opportunities to talk about that, but it's something I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, has that been on your mind a lot recently? I think it's always on my mind mm-hmm. because it's, again, that thinking of who's reading this and for what reasons. And I think when I started writing poetry, I came to it from a very fiction-based point of view. I've always thought I'm a fiction writer and I love writing short stories. And then I came to poems and it's like, ooh, it's a way of making short stories even shorter. And it never even really crossed my mind how people regard the I in the poem. It just hadn't even occurred to me that the I the first person in a poem was is often construed as some uh, some facet of identity of real you know corporeal identity or some some means of of apprehending the poet's identity as well and I think that depends on the reader as well again I've been reading a lot of um, reviews for I shouldn't say the book but I've been talking to another poet who had a book come out recently and she mentioned a review that talked about you know the confessional qualities of the book and she was really frustrated by that review because it's like well it's not looking at what I'm doing with with form and with structure and assuming a lot about the confessional space and you know we talk about Sylvia Plath as one of the confessional poets and often it just comes down to her identity as the mad woman doesn't it when when you actually look at her work there's so much going on on the level of persona and and how she uses form and how she uses voice I think Mm. anyway Mm. um, I guess the issue for me ended up being I was and I don't know where this pressure comes from whether it's within myself or whether it's from a white community or whether it's from a people of color community and it's just always this sense of am I writing the right poems for who I am (laughs) am I doing am I giving enough to my community and it's I think especially after my first book came out my only book um, the poem that people like to talk about is one called um, Kumo Lexical Gaps and it's the one with Hindi Mm. bits in it which I really like as a poem but I always regretted putting it in there because it's the one poem that I think can really be construed where the I is me and the I probably is me in that poem as well and I regret it a lot because people latch onto it Mm. (laughs) a lot as Mm. some representation of who I am and I think it comes down to not wanting I feel like I don't owe anyone my I and I just get routinely frustrated about (laughs) owing people my I and I talked to um I got to through Liminal Mag do a little interview with um, Elena Gomez recently and uh, she's also spoken about that idea of um, I think autobiography I think you guys talked about this actually in your interview with her the autobiographical versus like the subjective experience and how I think she's really resisting that as well like you know what relevance does autobiography have to the poem Mm -hmm. what does it add to a reading what does it subtract I think more importantly for from a reading and I think Mindy Gill here in Brisbane is doing some exciting work around that at the moment too yeah. but it's I don't know it's a difficult path to tread because I think you can get into the habit of writing I know if I want to get a poem published I call them brown poems and I think like often you can make money off that 
space. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying that, <laughs> but I feel like that's a thing of like, you know, that's a poem I can easily, if I write a confessional poem, I can probably find a home for it. You and mean then, if it foregrounds that particular yeah, part of your identity? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think um, I can more easily find a place for that than if I write my like Captain America fan fiction poem, <laughs> which, oh, which apparently no one wants to read. <laughs> to me, what you've just said is so much less about your responsibility in a writer and so much more a question for editors and in some, you know I'm sort of hesitating to say an indictment of editors I've been on the other side of editorial boards very briefly and been privy to conversations about heavy quote marks diversity yeah. and representation and making sure that we have enough from column a b and c that never felt good, mm -hmm. never felt good to be part of that conversation. Um, so that's just a really fascinating thing you say. Also really fascinating what you say about lexical gaps being the poem that people pull out of the agonist. It's so different to so many, like I I don't, to be honest with you, I don't really remember that poem. I remember yeah. the poem, what Thank I remember <laughs> is, I remember the poems where the body is physically dismembered in all these these different and quite um you know horrifying ways i kept thinking throughout as i was reading like this book could almost be wrapped in plastic <laughs> <laughs> you know the way they used to do with american psycho mm -hmm. yeah um it's there's just so much there's so much more to the book obviously that's like a pointless thing to say but um and i think it's yeah. always like i'm only getting a certain window into what people are doing with the work as well and that's fine and once it's left me it's left me mm. you know it's and I think I think that's part of my problem actually like having to keep doing this thing where you're explaining it again and talking over it again mm. where once it's kind of outside my body it's outside of my body right but I think you know what I took from what you know we said when we briefly chatted on the phone was mm. that you are having to do that work over and over again and you yeah. are having to sort of restate that boundary around the work and say just because I am this certain person doesn't mean that these poems are these necessarily in, in any way tied to that yeah um, and some of them are and it'd be great if I could stop having this conversation. It's interesting. <laughs> and I'm aware yeah. as I'm saying that is that I'm kind of making you have the conversation no. again. <laughs> no, it's um, it's really interesting just in um, reading reviews, and it's such a privilege to be reviewed first off. So that's um, always a thing I'm grateful for and very happy to um, to have and to have been lucky enough to receive. But just reading a review where someone genders a speaker in a particular way and often I try to work with um, male speakers in the poems just because I think like you were talking about the dismemberment the level of dismemberment is not something I'm comfortable inflicting upon a brown female body <laughs> and working mm. with almost these like white cis male speakers from various you know fictional fandom contexts and canons is a safer way to enact that dismemberment I think yeah but that not coming through to the reviewer even though there's a certain I don't know sometimes there'll be a pronoun in there often there's not 
but not having the poems read that way is really interesting. You know, always this assumption of, of a female speaker, mm. even in the poems where I think it's perhaps more evident that it's a male or should be a male, but that's, um, I don't know, that's an interesting thing that I've kind of come up against again and again, and it's never like, obviously I'm never gonna email someone and be like, excuse me, <laughs> you misgendered my, my speaker, <laughs> but it's, um, it's just an interesting thing, and it's, I don't know, it's made me think more critically about the assumptions I make when I go into reading anything, mm. and again, it's that how much do I have to bring about the author into the reading of the poem because I've always been very, de you know, death of the author and just wanted to read the work and bring myself to the work and mm. see what reading arises then. But I think we're, I don't know, I feel like we're almost resistant to doing that when dealing with um, with works written by people of color. And I, I don't know if how many people would agree or disagree with me on that, but that's my, that's my sense, I think. Mm. Yeah, when I interviewed Alison Whitaker, she talked about the essays in Firefront mm -hmm. and why she has, um, I can't remember the exact number, maybe six or seven essays to mark out the six or seven sections. And she specifically said, you know, this is to shelter these poems from the white gaze. They are going to get read in a certain way. Mm. And I wanted elders to write these essays and just um yeah again just like set a boundary around the work and be yeah. like this is what these poems are if you have questions go back to the essay don't bother the yeah poets. that's really interesting <laughs> uh which is was sort of how i understood what she said mm. um and i've always just thought that that is such an excellent strategy it's just one strategy but it seems like a really effective one um in the agonist you have a notes section and i know when you talk to terry ann in um the hello poet interview that you did you said oh, I hate the notes section I hate that I had to put that in there but I love a notes section oh. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of a notes section you know I love Ken Bolton for that reason he will like tell you exactly what's going on in a poem and he'll also admit when he doesn't have a clue what's going on in, mm -hmm. in his poems um, I wonder if there's a way for something like that to function as a bit of a barrier and a bit of a you know, just a little bit of signposting um, about what the aim is. Now it just sounds like I'm giving you advice. That's just <laughs> silly. That's just silly. Um, no, it's, yeah. a, it's a good point, though, because it's always that thing of how much do you want, how much do you want to guide the reader? Yeah. And I've always been of the opinion that if I write a poem about Captain America, the reader doesn't need to know <laughs> that it's, you know, what will it aid anything like will it aid their reading of the poem? and that's also that thing of you know reader centered again thinking about who's reading the work and why and i think this was something i had to consider particularly with the agonist because it was a thomas shapcott poetry prize winning collection so there's a certain assumption that it's going to be read by a certain audience at least as a ukp title mm. there's unfortunately that not unfortunately but you you think okay it's going to have a fairly wide readership how many of them <laughs> are going to have watched captain america the winter soldier 20 times <laughs> no, none of them and that's fine but then it's like you know i think it's that thing of sometimes when you add a add a note or add an after or add even if you're in conversation with another poem, mm. sometimes the weight of that can change the reading entirely. And it's whether or not that's a 
a good thing or a bad thing and yeah. I don't have the answer I don't know what works better or what doesn't um, you can't you can't account for every kind of reader is yeah. the thing. and I really liked what you said again in that interview with Terry Ann you said not every not every poem is for everyone so if not every poem is for everyone then in a way we can kind of let go of worrying about every sort of audience but you know I, I really appreciate you bringing that bringing up that example of that review mm-hmm. um, and that being unsatisfactory to the author because um, that's just really frustrating like I think about I think about Plath uh, saying she thought the bee poems her beekeeper poems were mm. the poems that were going to make her name she wrote to her mum and was like this is it mum I figured it out I don't know that we really remember the bee poems. No. <laughs> we remember Daddy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and Lady Lazarus. Mm-hmm. And she must hate that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <sighs> she, Maybe not. Maybe she's okay with it. It's a difficult thing, though, and it comes down to, I don't know, it's it's work, isn't it? It's what you put work into and it's what you, your darlings in a way. Yeah. And it's what you I don't know there are lots of poems I'd love to be defined by and lexical gaps isn't one of them you know what I mean <laughs> Great. and it's and that's fine yeah. um, but it's again that I don't know it's that weight of carrying the poem with you I guess mm. which I think we have to do yeah in this day and age we can't well probably in every day and age you know it's connected to the I guess I don't know I guess because I'm I'm in so many fandom spaces I started like writing properly fan fiction was what I first started writing so I was really used to being in fandom spaces and places like tumblr where I just see poems and that was kind of almost my first introduction to poetry really was just seeing things and not really engaging with them in any particular way but seeing things divorced of context oftentimes and right now people on tumblr are doing these parallel sort of things where they're bringing in like multiple quotes and you know stacking all these fragments of poems together and forming these really interesting collages so I've always been really used to that space of all you need to bring is yourself Mm. (laughs) to to a, a work or to a story or to a to an existing canon which you can then repurpose in any way shape or form that you like so I guess it's a very different experience coming into poetry whereas I thought it would be more the same given that we always steal as much as possible from other poets and repurpose in various ways and mm. use intertexts but it's it's not the same really yeah yeah there's so much freedom in that idea of just bringing it's just you and the poem and yeah. do you you know how does it make you feel mm-hmm. totally different to really how I've approached poetry at any time in my life where I'm always just like well I mean I guess um I understand it vaguely but I Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm missing huge chunks of context and there's like all this anxiety and like the this feeling that I have to have read Milton if I haven't read fucking Milton then I'm never going to get anywhere (laughs) and I still haven't read Milton um (laughs) would you like to read a poem at this point to sort of maybe I really like that you had the opportunity to say that lexical gaps is not it would you like to read a poem from the agonist I would love to yeah Yeah. I thought I would read um I saw the devil in the cane fields is that okay with you okay yeah I saw the devil in the cane fields 
in the Atherton summer. My nose was bleeding and there was no one out, not for miles or months. My father had followed the lake boats to Erie. He used to tie jitterbees to eagle claws and name the bait after my mother, but he never caught anything, not for years. So he named the bait after me instead. The devil held my hair back as I washed my face in the kitchen sink. The air was sticky and I could taste ozone in the back of my throat. The other boys had found scorch marks in the western fields and my hands still smelled of burnt sugar. The devil and I sat at opposite ends of the tiny dining table and listened to the roaches scuttle beneath the refrigerator. I watched the devil take the east road, hands in pockets, eyes on the stars. His shadow kept me company in the doorframe. One day's walk to reach Cairns. He had a sprawling gait and I thought perhaps next time we'd try dancing. Thank, Thank you. you. No worries. I've been wondering about what's changed for you since you wrote that book. I know that you said you finished the exclusion zone, the manuscript. Mm -hmm. and. Um, again, I know you said in that interview with Terry Ann that you were sort of hoping to get away a little bit from certain aspects of the agonist, but they were sort of following you. Yeah. <laughs> How has that been going? I think all of it followed me. I think I'm always going to be interested in the body because I think it's the means by which we apprehend and interact with the world. But I think there was this big thread of, um, of I think, prophecy and myth-making through The Agonist as well. And that was something that I thought I wasn't going to, to revisit again. Hmm. And then really when it came back to that, I've been writing a lot of nuclear-related things, and it's almost this, um, this prophecy in the making, the nuclear, I think. There's a, um, there's, my thesis is concerned with the nuclear semiotics, which is, an endeavor to try to create warning signs to warn the future generations about nuclear waste uh, that will last for about a time span of 10,000 years, which isn't really sufficient because some wastes will be dangerous for millions, if not billions of years. Um, the hope is that we'll find a way to clean it up and all will be well. But there's this sense that we've, I don't know, it's the whole Pandora's box thing, isn't it? But there's this idea of creating a mythology around nuclear waste, which we almost have in a way, nuclear weapons itself. You look at a lot of the, um, the American propaganda around that and there's this idea of um, taking the power of God and giving it to man in, um, in the atomic bomb. And I really thought that I would be doing something different, something more eco-poetic, something very land-based, land-centered, but it really became about mythologies and what mythologies we invent for ourselves in mm. the wake of these things that are going to outlast us and outlast our children and our children's children and probably further along that line as well yeah. so it's it all followed me I think that entire book followed me mm. and I don't think that's a bad thing but I it's that thing of wanting to 
wanting to make something better. I don't know, I have that second book anxiety mm. happening mm. in me at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I was, I wanted to ask you about that because I had this weird experience where I had like a chat book and my first book come out almost at the same time. Mm. Um, and now I feel totally paralyzed because I'm like, whatever happens next has to be a lot better yeah. and quite different and I feel as if perhaps I should wait you know five maybe more years until something like that happens um, but also I feel like you have to write the next thing to get to the thing after that mm-hmm. and close the loop and it sounds like for you there's an idea that's circling you and following you and it's you've come at it one way now you're coming at it from a, a totally different way um, yeah like how how do you know when you're ready to do the second book (laughs) I don't know because it's also that thing of having finished the manuscript but also like I'm not done with the idea Mm -hmm. but the but the manuscript is kind of done and I'm just like oh do I I think it's it's interesting hearing about other poets because I've heard anecdotally like um you know poets like maybe Jill Jones or someone will have so many like three or four manuscripts on the go oh is that true I didn't know that yeah I'm this is a friend of a friend. This is right. what I've heard. Jill, please correct me if I'm incorrect. <laughs> Let us know, But Jill. Um, yes, yeah. it's just that idea of, you know, writing a poem and then going, oh, okay, this is this goes over here. Mm. I can't do that. Mm. <laughs> it's just all one kind of thing for me. And I think Liam Fernie is probably very similar, like kind of writes over a, a time period and finishes and is fine and happy with that. And I really like that idea of just you know, if this series of poems encompass this period of time and there's a certain freedom in that. Yeah. And I think it's just that sense of wanting to, I'm wanting to be better each time, wanting to learn something new, wanting to demonstrate that I learned something new or that I tried something different or that something else happened mm. in this work that didn't happen before. Mm. And it's, I don't know, maybe that's just a personal thing, but that's, maybe that's also just being in a university system and having had university support <laughs> to, to write these works as well, where you just want to keep having a novel idea, I suppose, but doesn't everyone want to do that? Well, for sure. And it would also be weird if it didn't matter to you whether you were, whether your next book was better. Although I suspect there are poets who just write books and yeah. put them out. But um, yeah, it'd be weird if you didn't want to improve. I guess I wonder how we measure that Mm -hmm. um is it a question of just trusting your editor i suppose so Mm. trusting your marker i don't know Mm. (laughs) it's it's a difficult thing i know i think i'm i feel like reading i don't it'll be difficult for me to i'm still so close to it but i think having had a bit of time in the examination process away from my thesis and then coming back to it i kind of I'm really happy with it and I think these are good poems but I feel that way about the first book still I've heard a lot of people kind of say oh I had the first book come out and then I hated it and I never looked at it again but I'd like I look at that and I think that was okay like yeah yeah it's funny actually because I I um caught up with Justin Clemens the mm. other week and I mentioned that if the stars aligned I was going to get to see you and talk to you and he was saying, oh, I remember picking up Shastra's book out of the pile 
and just knowing like it was just so much better than anything else that was put in for that year <laughs> so, like, oh thank you, you should, justin <laughs> you should be proud of it you should stay proud of it um but yeah look i think these are i think these are good it's sort of a weird way to say it but i guess these are good anxieties to have you know yeah like should, I would um, should want to should want to shift and change and improve. Yeah, I would rather have this anxiety than not caring. I guess I care about the work. Like I care. I don't take myself very seriously, but I care about what I'm doing. Yeah, you know? yeah. To change tack entirely, it is a, a little bit weird because with the nuclear semiotics thing, I'm really in two minds about bringing this up. But I lived. Mm. In, I lived very close to the town where Fukushima Daiichi was yeah. in the year before the tsunami. So mm. I feel like we could talk about Fukushima for half an hour. Yeah. But that would be really depressing. So let's not, <laughs> let's not do that. Um, is there a poem from that collection that you would like to read, though? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's do that next. Um, this is This one is actually called Fukushima soil now, but when I wrote it, it was called Concerning Divination 2. I'm very bad at poem titles, um, but I'd there is a poem called Concerning Divination in the Agonist, which m- most people do not like, but I like the poem. And it was why don't they like it? <laughs> I, it's uh, it's very esoteric and has long words in it. Uh, yeah, okay. It's, it has unnecessarily. I. I just like a lot of the old-timey divination, like an ornithomantist. That's a, that's a good word. I like it. Yeah. I like I like a word that you have to put into Google. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but I understand that other people do not like Google.com, even though most of us have all means to access Google.com. It's true. Yeah. Every day, I, but I, that's fine. I only have one friend who bothers to Google stuff out of poems. Really? Um, but it it serves her very well. Yeah. I just yeah. I don't know. I really I like when a text introduces me to a new word or a new concept or something I really Mm. enjoy that and I write them all down and yeah I like a new word Mm. anyway there was a poem in that book by that same title and it was that weird experience of um having a speaker kind of come back and realizing that I'd gotten this same speaker at a very different point in their lifetime and it was really nice having that speaker come back to me for this poem so it was concerning divination too but now it is called Fukushima Soil. For most of my life I've been right about omens, salt, ravens, red skies at morning, rocks thrown against the wind. A six-pack ring found in the vicinity of a sparrow's nest suggests three loves before marriage, a robin's egg split ends. Stones skipped over an oil-slicked lake are lucky luckier still by an evening bonfire, flame licking the corner of a clamshell punnet of strawberries. To be born on uranium-rich soil is to say something about granite, sunflowers, polymer, the transfiguration of telluric into human object. A prophecy is only as good as its seer and no witness is ever on time. Today I was divining the melt point of a bulk bag, the heat required to spur an entanglement of matter, amalgam of polypropylene and Fukushima soil, the time it takes to write radiance into rock. 
What remains after passing is plastiglomerate, pressure, and the cascade that rots cesium to barium. What departs is various. It was many years ago, now, when a stone was just a stone. Thank you. Thank you. What's that line? No witness is ever on time. Yeah, Derrida. It's great. Yeah. It's it's Derrida. <laughs> well, it's a remix Derrida. <laughs> <laughs> he won't mind. He's okay with it. I'm sure he'll be fine with yeah. it. It is lovely to hear a poem about Fukushima that isn't totally devastating mm. and um, is a little bit more complicated than I remember at first, like, I probably wrote one too, um, but people were just writing these god-awful laments, you yeah. know, just about like, oh, what have we done? We've ruined everything. And it's like, no, okay, first of all, <laughs> it was a 9.1 earthquake yeah. and tsunami. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like human folly necessarily at that point. And yeah, it just, it really felt to me at that moment like it was a an excuse for poets to... Um, do this sort of very like public displays of grieving about something that had really very little to do with their lives (laughs) it's an interesting thing because i think on one hand uh the nuclear problem is such a global problem because no matter where you are you can your bones can be dated against a, a nuclear timeline and i guess there's that whole thing of like the idea of tsunamis and natural disasters obviously being tied into climate change and how we mark the Anthropocene usually as a as a beginning with um with the Manhattan Project and and the development of um of Fat Man and Little Boy as well. So it's this weird entangled system and this whole idea of systems failure happening there as well. But then you look at sites like um like Fukushima Daiichi and like um, the Chernobyl exclusion zone and I think Chernobyl in particular where the wildlife has just flourished because humans are not in that space and in Mm. Fukushima a lot of um, residents are trying to go back to their homes at the moment but they found that the area is kind of overrun with wild boar and Mm. the boar aren't afraid of people because they've never really interacted with people before and are kind of inhabiting these houses Mm. and are really confused at people. Yeah. coming into those spaces and it's like what are you doing in my house so yeah. it's that really interesting kind of weird you know and there's um there's a wonderful artist I think um the name escapes me Kunihiro someone but he's done these beautiful picture books for children on um on the Fukushima Daiichi disaster and he has this one wonderful image of an abandoned shrine that's captioned maybe people aren't meant for this place anymore yeah. and it's mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that, that was something that, like, eventually when I accepted that I was never going to go back to these towns mm. again, you know, where we had, like, had the best times of our yeah. young lives, you know, we were never going to get to go back there. Um, it was comforting to realise that they were going to be just unspeakably beautiful no one was really going to see that stuff but they were just you know all the blossom trees that we used to like hang out under and get drunk under they were still going to bloom just no one was going to watch it Mm. that's okay um yeah i promise promise myself wasn't going to talk about (laughs) it okay uh let's change tack i um i really wanted to ask you about 
I don't really know why this question came to me, but it was something that I thought might be interesting to ask you about in terms of poetic elders, mm-hmm. like people whose either whose work you look to, or even more people who you I don't really, really want to say look up to, but like who have given direction, advice, that kind of thing. Because um, it's taken me a little while to find those people, but when I have found them, it's been kind of world changing and I wonder if there's people in in your life like that this is going to be really cringe in terms of just work I look up to in general but I always (laughs) like the modernists and I love T.S. Eliot and I love that era of W.H. Auden and just that writing was Mm. where I think often you like I think about where I place myself you know what movement I would place myself in and I still think of myself as that's like the space that I'm writing within Mm. but I've been really lucky to have been working with um Bronwyn Lee since 2015. Oh wow. Yeah she was my honours supervisor and then took me on again for PhD and has kind of been mentoring me both in um poetry and in um, academic spaces as well and that's been the most um, rewarding <laughs> wonderful like generous thing anyone has ever done for me mm-hmm. and I I don't know it's that scary thing of thinking how am I gonna <laughs> how am I gonna do this without Bronwyn Lee helping <laughs> and well, maybe you with, don't have to maybe I don't have to I think she's taught me really well but it's mm-hmm. that idea I don't know because I I went into I I hadn't written any poetry except for the really bad teenage high school poetry that everyone writes, which I don't know, was probably fine. But then I came to uni writing short stories, went to Bronwyn Lee's poetics course in 2013, Mm. where she was lecturing and was just the most magnetic person I've ever seen do anything. And she, in our first lecture, she read the Sharon Olds poem, um, I Go Back to May 1937. I don't I think, think I know that one. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, um, it's incredible. Shall I, do you want me to read it? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Get some Sharon Olds on here. Let's let me, do it. Let me Google it. But it's, um, it's just the, I, I can, and I still hear it every time I'm reading it in my head um, in Bronwyn's voice. Cool. And I can just... Um, I feel like Bronwyn might have edited Mianjin poetry for a while. Yeah, she's still editing yeah, it now she still at the moment. Poetry editor there. Yeah. And she was involved in um, Best Australian Poems, I think, when Yukiki was still doing yes, it. Yes, and I feel as if... I'm pretty sure yeah. she started the Thomas Shopcott and Felvelis Award. I'm right. not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know fully. You know how the organisation kind of takes on like ownership of that sort of thing? But I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not yeah it's hard sure. to know where, which person it starts yeah. ends with. But I feel like Bronwyn was one of those... She sent me one of those lovely rejection letters that it was a form rejection, but it had a little handwritten line underneath. And mm-hmm. I think she just said, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that was enough. You know, it was like yeah. she cared enough to write that down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that was Bronwyn, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. She used to be poetry editor at, um, at UQP, and mm-hmm. I know she did, I think she did Felicity Plunkett's first collect, Vanishing Point, Oh, I okay. Think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that time, and um, um, Rosanna Lucari maybe, quite a few poets, I think, and she worked with Martin Duell, I right. think, quite closely as right. well, so, yeah. 
She knows her stuff from she, when? She does know her stuff. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so what's your Sharon Olds? Oh, um, I go back to May 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges. I see my father strolling out under the ochre standstone arch, the red tiles glinting like bent plates of blood behind his head. I see my mother with a few light books at her hip, standing at the pillar made of tiny bricks. The wrought iron gate still open behind her, its sword tips aglow in the May air. They are about to graduate. They are about to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. All they know is they are innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, stop, don't do it. She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You are going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You are going to do bad things to children. You are going to suffer in ways you have not heard of. You are going to want to die. I want to go up to them there in the late May sunlight and say it, her hungry, pretty face turning to me, her pitiful, beautiful, untouched body, his arrogant, handsome face turning to me, his pitiful, beautiful, untouched body. But I don't do it. I want to live. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint as if to strike sparks from them. I say, do what you are going to do and I will tell about it. I do know that poem actually. It's good, isn't it? Chills. <laughs> Sharon, what are you doing, mate? I, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Bronwyn read that poem and that last line was her evocation you know like her her command for the rest of the semester do what you are going to do and you will tell about it you know and it was uh yes it's good stuff so i feel uh, yeah i feel really lucky to have been in this institutional space which i think a lot of people aren't privileged enough um to get and it's a huge privilege and a huge um huge opportunity for me which i don't think anyone requires i don't know there's a real culture of creative writing programs at the moment in Australia isn't there probably everywhere but it's that frustrating thing of everyone's kind of doing a PhD at the moment or, or doing something which is which is annoying but it's one of the few ways you can kind of get a little grant to, to write the book and do the work um, but I think I don't know I learned from my peers a lot and I guess I'm really interested in digital poetics and digital works at the moment and for that I've always looked towards um, Tegan Webb and Rory Green Rory Green, sorry, and the work that they're doing. And I'm, I don't know, I think you always have something to learn from your peers as well. And I think I'm learning from everyone. Zenobia Frost is someone who I read and want to be like, but I don't mm. think anyone can be like Zenobia Frost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never want to stop reading my peers and contemporaries. Yeah. Um, th it's painful sometimes, though. Like, I feel a lot of envy mm. a lot of the time does that come up for you mm. you seem like a, a much more generous hearted person <laughs> than me <laughs> I'm I don't think I've been envious a lot recently I think I'm I feel really good maybe it's because I feel okay with what I've done you know that's right I feel like I'm like yeah. I don't know I feel like I had a good a good hot go with 
with the book and it did what it needed to do. Maybe I'll feel, I don't know. I think I'll know better after the second one. Maybe if I like, if it goes really badly and someone says mean things to me on the internet, then, I'll <laughs> <laughs> then I won't. I don't know, I, I think I'm just excited about seeing what people are doing and reading what people are doing. Mm -hmm. So I, I try, I find publishing and prize culture and all of that a weird offshoot that we kind of have to deal with and navigate in order to have poetry and poems and in order to be able to read them and enjoy them. And so I take it as something that we have to engage with in this culture and that's fine, but mostly I just want to read what other people are doing and learn what I can from it, you mm. know. God, that's such a healthy way to look at it. <laughs> Jesus. It might change. <laughs> it might change very quickly. <laughs> but I think you're right. Like it is, without the prizes, without the unis, um, competitions to a certain degree, yep. there's just poets exchanging poems. And I have met poets who, have, who sort of approach it on that level and mm -hmm. they will hand you like a staple chapbook um, and that's that's what they see the work of being a poet as is to to write poems and read other people's poems and like share it around yeah which is pretty simple um, we certainly have done a good job of finding ways to tie ourselves in knots about it and then the other side of that whole conversation is like if that industry is functioning well, it's necessarily excluding a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Which on the one hand, I don't know, I guess I want to believe that it's meritocratic. That's the stupidest thing I've ever said in <laughs> here. But like, I want, I want to believe that the, you know, like that experience that, that Justin described, you know, coming across your manuscript and going, oh, this is way better than everything else in this pile. Like, I want to believe that that's how it happens. Mm. But as I sort of said at the start, like I've also been on the other side of the conversation where it's like we have to make sure that we look good and we look that we're doing the right thing, that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know, I've just been thinking about this a lot lately, just like... But it's even also the like having to be published to get published sometimes. Mm. Like I remember when I was sending work out before I had, before, I joked about this as um, I used to call myself Shafkot Deo, like before I was Shafkot Deo, <laughs> when I was just Shastra <laughs> and, and sending poems out and like not getting any bites or nibbles, which is fine. Mm. I completely understand that, you know, an editor gets 300 poem submissions has to have a short list of 100 then gets to publish 20 of them mm. fine totally understand not a big deal but then having that turn of actually having a name that was important in some way or recognized in some way and then having you know <laughs> editors contact you and be like oh do you have any work you know that you'd like to have wow. and usually it's that thing wow. it's, it's still not a guaranteed thing like it's just kind of a commission in a way and then I'll I'd send probably things that I would consider the same quality that I was sending in beforehand that wasn't getting in. And normally then you get a publication, you know what I mean? Mm. So mm. It, it happens and it's it's just kind of, I don't know, it's depressing. And it you almost want to say no and be like, no, you, you rejected me when I was no one. So I <laughs> <laughs> You can't handle me anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 
like I I feel really grateful to Jessie Wilkinson for like pretty much everything but mm. um, she did say something at the launch of I think Rabbit 3 which uh, changed a lot of things for me and, and really helped she just sort of said this is how I remember it this is years ago but she what I remember her saying was poets need to understand that if nobody knows who you are nobody will publish your work yeah and I was just like you mean but i'm banking on um my genius here yes <laughs> i don't want to talk to anyone <laughs> absolutely it's messed yeah. up and then yeah. it's that thing of also like working like with teaching having worked with all these poets who are not sending work anywhere because they weren't poets until <laughs> until maybe five weeks into the semester, you know, yeah, and weren't comfortable yeah. calling themselves that. Yeah. But um, just this idea of wanting to say, like, you should get paid for your work, you know, you should be able to send this work somewhere and someone will pay you for publishing it. Mm. But that's really hard. <laughs> it's even hard in um, in places like Cordite, which are famously and wonderfully like blind submissions for that. It's still difficult, you know, mm. to get a publication there. And then you have more spaces like smaller chapbooks, that sort of thing, um, online journals who are doing great work, but don't have the capacity to pay for the poem. And on one hand, I still love to be part of those sorts of things. But on the other hand, like this year was a year where I was kind of like, I can't, I need to be paid <laughs> for mm. the poems. You mm -hmm. know, I'm not sending work to any publications that won't pay me, but then you end up having to do a lot of that unpaid labor. You know, you're a lot of, poetry publications I know at the start for me I was sending a lot of work out that I did not get paid for and that's fine because there were publications that I really liked and was glad to be a part of but it's that weird balancing act of like getting your name out there versus being adequately compensated for your labor and for the work that you've done you know mm. I've never even thought about it in those terms which is sort of sad like I've, mm. I've never considered the work and being adequately paid for it um, probably speaks more to my <laughs> self-esteem than anything else. I but think, yeah. it, but it's that thing of like, I don't know, it's just a hard thing because it's like you should get paid for the work that you do, but then it becomes this, it becomes another thing that you're monetizing, yeah. then which I also hate. So it's just this weird double bind of like, what is the right thing to yeah. do, yeah. you know? Yeah. I can imagine too with students, like it must be tricky when you get asked that question, where can I get this published? Yeah. And I don't know, it's almost like when I interviewed Jennifer Compton the other day, she used this wonderful word, divergenating. So like <laughs> you're divergenating them, you're saying, you're, you're introducing them to this world with this like crazy ass economy, like that doesn't make any sense and this this um this networking element that's like both really important and really annoying yeah um and i don't know i can imagine if i were a teacher i'd want to say like don't just don't <laughs> just <laughs> just free yourself of any <laughs> just just do this for fun put, <laughs> put them up on light posts yeah and just like, put it on instagram yeah. and be done with it be free just live your life freely and wonderfully i don't know i think like voice works is really great but then again it's that under 25 yeah. thing as well and I think we're seeing more and more students in who are doing something like a writing degree later in life which I think is great mm. um, but it's I don't know it's hard mm. I don't have a good answer because no. it's no I'm not asking you to and it's come up with a solution to that 
Yeah, it's just a weird space that we're in, mm. a weird and frustrating space to be in sometimes. Yeah. Well, we, de- we definitely don't want to end there. So <laughs> let's, the, the other thing that, that I had here that I sort of wanted to bring up was this beautiful quote from Wilfred Owen, who I know is a, a favourite of yours. Mm. Wilfred Owen also happens to be the poet whose um, poem initiated me. Um, I think it's pronounced Dolce a decorum est, yeah. not Dolce a decorum est, but yeah, that, that poem was was the light bulb moment for mm. me uh, in year nine. Um, but you quoted him as saying, all a poet can do today is warn. That is why a true poet must be truthful. And I guess I sort of thought maybe to end, I could ask you about your, un- your use and understanding of the word truthful. Yeah because you write in persona um and obviously a persona poem can tell an emotional truth a general truth if not a factual one Mm. um and and also back to that plath thing like i feel like there's this weird pressure on maybe all poets definitely female poets and probably also poets of color to Mm. like show us everything and show us the real stuff and tell me what's going on you know in your your deepest darkest heart (laughs) god knows why but yeah how how do you think about that stuff do you feel like a pressure to be truthful to expose yourself um is persona a way of resisting that any any and all thoughts on that i think the interesting thing with owen and what i really loved about owen in um in reading that quote it's um from his preface the preface that he hoped to include for a a collection of war poems he wanted to publish in um, 1919 and then of course he died um, just just a a week a week and an hour I think maybe before the armistice was um, was announced but he he writes so often he creates these fictional like strange meeting one of his poems which is in draft form but um but he's that poem is this you know almost fictional meeting of, of two soldiers, you know, two enemy soldiers on, on after death, you know, on the battlefield. So he's doing this really subversive work where he's creating little scenarios, little moments. And I don't always believe the I in those poems is Wilfred Owen. So I think he's doing this interesting play of, of um, taking on voices and that idea of warning I think from him is really interesting Mm. as well because warning as how do we warn other people you know how do we perform that act of warning and is a warning less valid if it comes from an uncertain eye if it comes from an uncertain speaker do we need to know the identity of who is warning us for us to take that warning on properly and I think we could have a whole other conversation about something like COVID and warnings and how, and and how, you know, medicine and so on and science is being denigrated in certain ways as as not the right speaker to deliver warnings. Nonetheless, I think his, um, the way Owen uses truth is something about that emotional truth. And I think the idea of the true poets as well is an important thing to pick up on because that he says all a poet can do today is warn. But when you read Owen's war poetry, he says even in that in that preface, um, the the poet this above all this book is not about poetry. The poetry is in the pity, and he's talking about how this 
this book is about nothing but war. But you read those poems and he is technically, like on the technical level, they're such fantastic, taught, muscular poems with I don't think a word out of place anywhere in them. They're beautifully structured. And it's really about the true poem, you know, the true poet writing the true poem, mm. the true poet using the poem and extending its form to the point where it can be as powerful and as potent. And I like the word muscular, as muscular as possible. So I guess it's, for me, persona is the way I can, the way I do that. I don't know, it's, persona is what's natural to me. I need that voice, I need that other voice because I really don't think I have that much to say with my eye. Maybe that's a sad thing, I don't know, maybe that's too sad a note to end on. But it's that, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in, I've always been interested in big media, like big showy productions. I love Marvel, I love video games, I love those sorts of things, but the idea of the gaps and the human gaps and silences that exist within those sorts of things. And that's always the path that I've written myself into. That's the means by which I interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And persona is the way I can speak honestly, I think. I just don't have that much to say about being a brown person or being a woman or being a being <laughs> in this world. But I have lots to say about Captain America, you know, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that poem. Is this a dumb thing for me to be saying? I love it. I love it so much. Like, fuck yeah. As if you should have to sit, you know, if you don't want to write if you don't want to write poems about, you know, your identity as a as a female, as, you know, someone born in Fiji or, like, somebody who lives in Brisbane, like, God, just... <laughs> you, you shouldn't have to. You absolutely shouldn't have to. Because I, I think yeah. people are doing that work and they're doing it really well. And it's like, oh, I love reading that stuff. But it's like, yeah. I have nothing to add to that. And I think that's been mm. an interesting... I think I can demonstrate that better in in digital practice where I love like mm. the works that um, people like say, uh, Zenobia Frost and uh, Ray White at the moment are doing in Twine and they're doing these really interesting um, things and structures. Zenobia just had a, a guided meditation type poem, I think published in the Cordite Game Issue, which is fascinating. And the thing with digital works for me is that I'm always, that's very reader-centered for me as well. I'm thinking, has someone done this before? <laughs> And if someone's done it before, or if someone's kind of done something and I can't think of a way to like take the idea and make it better and extend on it in some way, I'm not going to do it. And it's the same thing for me with writing about being someone born in Fiji or writing about being a woman. If someone's already written the work and I can't, I feel I can't add to it in any way, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. What's the point? It's already there. Yeah. It's already been done. I want to do something that hasn't been done before that can only be said by me. Coming up on the drop zone, Cap. You do anything fun Saturday night? Well, all the guys in my barbershop quartet are dead, so... No, not really. You know, if you ask Kristen out from statistics, she'd probably say yes. That's why I don't ask. Too shy or too scared? Too busy! Is he wearing a parachute?